Hello, Southfires. Daniel Robinson is a Royal Air Force veteran and the founder and CEO of Red Six, a revolutionary technology firm at the forefront of synthetic air combat training. And he's taking part in a thought-provoking chat for South by Southwest tomorrow, March 12th, at the Capitol Factory from 2.45 to 3.45 p.m. Central, titled Building a Metaverse. Even though this is part of the festival, you don't need a badge to attend. All you have to do is RSVP through CapitalFactory.com. Daniel, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. We're looking forward to South by Southwest. Yeah, looking forward to it as well. So uh, I'm curious, because of your background, when did you first fall in love with the idea of learning to fly? Oh, that's an interesting one. So I actually grew up in, in the northeast of England in a coal mining community. And uh, I guess when I was a kid, the first movie I got to see was Superman with the late, great uh, Christopher Reeve. And images of him flying around uh, the streets of Manhattan was kind of the genesis of my love affair with aviation. And then quite simply, it went from, from that movie to Star Wars and an obsession with X-Wing fighters. And now ultimately, I saw Top Gun when I was, I think I was like 12 or 13 years old. And uh, the moment I saw Top Gun and realized that was actually a job that uh, was real, I was like, that's it. I, I want to be a fighter pilot. So once I, I got over the fear of potentially dying in an airplane accident or something like that, I... I was single, uh, singular focus on uh, on achieving that goal from really being a kid. And I think it was that focus that uh, enabled me to just kind of get out of uh, where I came from, frankly, and, and get myself to the Air Force Academy. So there's obviously different routes that you can go in trying to learn to fly. Why did you ultimately decide to do so for the UK's Royal Air Force? Yeah, I mean, look, gr growing up in the UK, I think flying was such an aspirational sort of endeavor from, from where, you know, certainly from where I came, I think for any young man, it's uh, or, or a woman indeed, it's, it's, it's something that we aspire to. It's, you know, a romantic idea of a career. Um, and I've always been the kind of person that really likes to, to challenge myself. I, when I was 14 or 15 years old, I actually having seen Top Gun, I was like, okay, this is the, the most demanding type of flying that's possibly out there. And the idea of being a fighter pilot just seemed so ambitious to me, but it seemed like a noble goal. Um, and so I, I needed to figure out how to learn to, to fly. And um, I started out being a, a milkman when I was uh, 14 or 15 years old. And no kidding, I get up at like four o'clock in the morning and hmm. carry crates of milk miles. And I would earn 40 pounds a week, which is about $50 uh, back in the day, which meant every two weeks I could afford a flying lesson. So I, I taught myself to fly from being a little kid and I, I met a mentor of mine who since then has actually passed away sadly but a name a name a gentleman by the name of Peter Gray and Peter told me about the Royal Air Force and scholarship schemes that they offered to get to the Air Force Academy and really helped me he just kind of put his arm around me and said hey I think you've got some talent young man and it kind of gave me a little bit of self-belief and and acted really as a mentor to me as a kid and, and pushed me towards the the Air Force uh, and then having, you know, ultimately being accepted into the Air Force Academy and then being given a pilot slot, it was a question of could I make it through training, which, uh, which takes a long time, certainly in the UK. Um, and so off I went into, into flight training in the Air Force, and that was the start of my career. Was your flying name anything as cool as Maverick? Uh, so fun story, which we'll get to later on in, in this, this chapter, but in the UK, we don't do call signs. We do nicknames, and it's pretty merciless to be honest so you got to be careful what you get over in the UK we're, we're a bunch of cynical people over there right so uh not not quite as cool as being in the US but ultimately I my journey would leave me here and, and that would materialize at some point yeah 
I have UK roots as well. Perhaps I can pinpoint where my cynicism comes from now. Now, oh, right. actually, yeah, that's probably it. That's probably it. Yeah. Now, you actually became the first foreign national to fly an F twenty two Raptor. Speaking of uh, feeling like you're straight in the straight out of the movie Top Gun, what was that piece of machinery like to control? I mean, look, the, just the opportunity to get to that airplane is was you know incredible. I, I actually flew tornadoes for the Royal Air Force for. Um, I, best part of six years I guess over in the UK and and from that was was lucky enough to be selected to go to the UK version of Top Gun which we call Fighter Weapons School um, mm. and that afforded me the opportunity to be in contention for the F-22 exchange when I was selected obviously I was the only non-American so it was just a huge privilege but stepping from the tornado to to the F-22 was akin to stepping onto the Starship Enterprise. Hmm. It was such a quantum leap in terms of capability. I mean, still to this day, even with the F-35, the F-22 is just by far and away the most capable airplane in the world. And, and I mean, it, it's a combination of obviously advanced avionics, incredible aerodynamic performance, um, sensor fusion, incredible engines, just, just an all round stunning airplane and, and flying it Flying it at any time is a huge privilege to, to be there as the first non-American and right at the early days when that airplane was just coming into operational service to be a part of that crowd was such a privilege. And I, I met some of the best human beings that today are lifelong friends and I'm lucky enough to still work with in Red Six. So in, incredible, incredible airplane. So after completing your service, you earned your MBA from Georgetown, worked for an investment firm for a while, and grew another company in the UK that even earned you a CEO of the Year Award, uh, I believe back in 2015 or 2016. Now in 2018, you mm -hmm. founded Red Six, which is obviously the company that you'll be talking about tomorrow at South by Southwest. What was the original vision behind Red Six? That's a great question so look back back when i was flying the f-22 um i had tremendous insight into an extraordinary capability of that airplane but also insight into some of the limitations not just associated with that airplane but with the broader air force itself and, and when i say air force us air force read every allied air force around the world we all have the same problems and it's a crippling lack of training um exasperated by through a number of factors right we've, we've obviously been involved in combat operations for, for 30 or so years in in the middle east um, and during that time, we've seen, frankly, the military atrophy slightly. Um, and, and so we found ourselves in a position where we didn't have enough pilots, airplanes, or dollars to provide enough aircraft to train against. You see, in, in very simple terms, every time a fighter pilot goes up to train, just as a singleton, we need someone to blind train against. And that's a multi-billion dollar a year problem. So we, did, we weren't solving that problem way back then. And I think most concerning of all to me, was even if we had enough pilots and airplanes and dollars to fix the problem, which we didn't, whilst we've been involved in combat operations in the Middle East, uh, two things have happened geopolitically on the world stage. One is, and it's timely and really sad, the reemergence of Russia onto the world stage as a state actor with absolutely nefarious intent, which we're seeing now in the tragedy that is Ukraine. Um, and, and I think most significantly of all is the pace of innovation and rise of China. Um, because in, in China, you've seen a long-term geopolitical strategy aligned to a systematic mobilization of a defense industrial base with heavy investment in technology. And that's really significant. It's really significant because even if we had the airplanes, pilots, and dollars to solve the problem, it's becoming increasingly difficult to simulate what we call peer adversaries right now. But for the first time, we're staring at a, a, a nation that, that is perhaps in some ways as capable of us, as us, some ways a little behind, and in some ways ahead. 
And if we're not concerned about that, uh, we're wrong. And so I wanted to solve that training crisis. I, I see it as a major national security crisis. So you, you kind of pointed out my, my journey. I, I came back to the United States in around the 2016, 17 timeframe, I think. And, and in 2017, I started thinking about the, the real questions in life. What am I fundamentally passionate about? How can I live as truthfully as possible working on problems that I really care about? And I came back to my little boy and, and just that, that state of my love affair with aviation and a real passion for national security. And so I started digging into this problem again and I realized we've continued to atrophy and the training crisis has gotten much worse. So I started building an airplane, which was the most irrational decision in the world. It was nothing more than a passion project at the time. But suffice to say that life was, and it's a really long story, which I'll share some other time, but life was telling me to build that airplane. And it was really spooky, the series of events that led me to it. So I was building an airplane and quite serendipitously into my life walked um, a couple of individuals. And, and one of those individuals, a co-founder in the business that I still work with to this day was called Glenn Snyder. His name was Glenn Snyder. And Glenn, I think back in 2015, 16, had actually achieved a world first in virtual reality and it was super cool. So he took two race cars, real race cars, um, put them on two separate racetracks at the same time, put real race car drivers into them and then created a virtual reality game. So each race car driver in a real car put a helmet on and even though they were in different locations, they looked left, looked right and they saw each other in this virtual volcanic multinational world. And they, no kidding, raced real race cars flying to the outside world against each other around a racetrack. Wow. And when I saw that, I was like, holy crap, that, that's incredible. I mean, Glenn, just hold that for a second. Then I called the Air Force up and I said, hey, how are you guys thinking about solving training in the future? And the Air Force obviously knew we had these problems. And so they were trying to solve it through a system called live, virtual, and constructive. And the idea being is that we're trying to negate the need to put real airplanes and real pilots up in the air to provide training. So could we supplement them with uh, virtual, i.e. real pilots flying simulators on the ground, but beamed up into the air such that pilots in the air can look down at their radar systems and think they're there. And constructive is in essence the same problem. It's just rather than it's virtual controlled by a human being, it is artificial intelligence controlling those entities. And so that is the way that we're going towards to solve the training crisis of the future. But the problem with that is it's a 50% solution. And as a training solution, it was never going to be realized because as soon as you got to within visual range, I, the, the role of a fighter pilot is twofold. You know? So let's say we start 100 miles away. Most of our work is done looking down at radar scopes at sensors, and we're taking shots against airplanes that we can't see because they're so far away. But as soon as you get to that sort of 10 nautical miles in, the role of a fighter pilot fundamentally changes from tactician and three-dimensional chess player to you, you're putting your gum shield in, you go for the proverbial fist fight, and you're doing the kind of visual maneuvering you'll see in Top Gun. And the problem with live virtual constructive is as soon as you entered that range, the whole training system collapsed. Why is that? Because there was no way of synthetically putting the um, entities into the field of view of the pilot. When he looks out, there's nothing there. And so how to solve that problem? Because it, it basically the training stops and it's negative training value. So when I saw what Glenn had done in race cars, I asked two simple questions. One was obviously, can we do that in airplanes? And we scratched our heads for a month or so and came up with a thesis. And the next question was, well, look, that's amazing, but no one in their right mind is going to allow a fighter pilot to fly around in virtual reality, blind to the outside world. So the next big question is, can we do that in augmented reality? 
And Glenn looked at me as if I was an idiot, which I, frankly I, I was at the time. And he said, no, absolutely not. I said, why? And he said, uh, well, because augmented reality doesn't work outdoors or in dynamic environments. And it's one of the reasons as an industry, it's languished behind virtual reality. So I was like, well, huh, why? And the, the cliff notes are, I kept asking why until he got sick of me and we figured out how to do it. <laughs> um, and so we came up with a thesis that we pitched the Air Force. And my, my thesis was, I think I can put virtual airplanes up in the sky um, and create an augmented reality world that you can take off into in real airplanes, uh, go up into the sky, drop down into a patent advisor system we've created and see augmented reality entities controlled by artificial intelligence that you can fly against. And so what is that? It's the world's first, I suppose, multiplayer video game played outdoors up in the sky in which we interact with it in real airplanes. The reason that's important is simulators have a very specific role for training, but for fighter pilots, the demands and stresses and strains of flying real combat airplanes are so intense that we need to fly. What this does is the best of both worlds. It allows us to go up in real airplanes, but it negates the need to spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year providing adversaries to train against. And oh, by the way, we can make them completely relevant because if we have the intelligence on the platforms, then for us, it's simply code and we can train against anything we want. And that was the, uh, the genesis of the business. And so what you've just described, what you guys built is what you call the military metaverse, correct? Yeah, so the, the, the evolution of our thinking ultimately evolved to the military metaverse. And, and let me talk you through what that, that journey looked like. So initially we wanted to just technically prove that this was possible. And so we worked with the US Air Force to, to develop it out in a single aircraft. I, could we take off in a real airplane, go up into the skies of Southern California and drop down into a system and see a series of augmented reality airplanes like I've described. And over a period of three years or so, we demonstrated the efficacy of that. Now, to be clear, that, that is a massive, massive step forward in terms of outdoor augmented reality capability. No, I, I don't believe anyone is doing anything like this in AR across the world, right? And whichever pick a company, I think we're, we're, we're doing the most exciting thing in AR right now by, by a long stretch. Uh, and we actually sort of have got that system working as a single entity, uh, you know, in a really compelling way. The next step in our thinking beyond that was how do we connect multiple players into game space? So in, in the Air Force, I, it's very rare that I would go up as a single airplane and train by myself against a quote unquote bad guy. We, we work in formation, so minimum of two aircraft or four aircraft or eight aircraft and so on and so forth. And so the demands, that, uh, the presentations that we, we need to train against are multiple entities. And that's obviously immensely expensive and very difficult to provide and we just can't do it. So the next, the next view, the next sort of logical step beyond that was to go from the initial ATARS technology, which we called it, we named it, into a system we've called Carbon. And Carbon is the combined augmented reality battle space in essence. Uh, and, and what that allows you to do is take off in multiple airplanes now and go up into, into the world's first multiplayer video game played outdoors up in the sky. Um, because we have a, we've created a network that fuses all of the information together and creates one common picture in which you and I could go up in separate, separate airplanes and interact in, and it would make sense to you from your position, and it would make sense to me from my position. And that was tremendously exciting. So that was carbon. And that re uh, represented a transformational breakthrough in how I thought about training for the military and solved some really acutely defined pain points. To be clear, 
we're not just talking about the Air Force, we're talking across the joint domain. So the idea is we connect soldiers, sailors, um, and into, in, in, into this world, and, and we train in a multiplayer environment. But then I started thinking about the, the, uh, the nature of training versus the nature of how we would do campaigns. And I started thinking about it in the context of the metaverse. And, and look, there are, there are multiple definitions of, of the metaverse. My, my personal take is that, um, look, I think the consensus is that met, the metaverse is neither AR or VR, right? They are means through which you, you would enter a metaverse. Uh, and the metaverse, in my view, is a digital layer of, of metadata and data um, that ultimately will prove to be mobile in nature and will be around us at all times. And we can step into it or out of it and how we choose to consume it, whether it be it AR or VR, is our choice. My personal take on the metaverse is that it will be an AR future. And I think over time, uh, VR will also be considered a subset of, of mixed reality. But two of the key critical components of what I think it is to, to, to be classified as a metaverse is, it has to be synchronous in real life and it has to be continuous in nature. That is to say, if I step in or out of the metaverse, life inside of the metaverse continues. Um, so it's synchronous and it's, it's continuous. And any actions I take inside the metaverse should have a, a, uh, an impact both inside the digital world and the real life as well. And if, if it doesn't, for me, it doesn't necessarily qualify as what I think of the metaverse. And so having framed that, I started thinking about um, the nature of campaign level uh, warfighting and how we would train against it. You see in campaign, pick a, pick a theater of operations. We, we would fly night one of the war, for example, in, in a theater of operations around the picket. We, we would create an impact on that first mission. And then as we roll over into the next day, the next wave of aircraft will go up and they'd be presented with a, a continuing picture based upon the results of the night, the, the, the day before. Well, it's very difficult to train for that because it's continuous, right? And obviously it's synchronous to real life because it is real life. Well, I started thinking about, well, okay, well, what if we could simulate that inside of a, a virtual augmented world, the augmented world of carbon? What if I could create an environment that is synchronous to real life? So we go up in our airplanes, we go into the quote unquote metaverse, we prosecute a mission, we land, but the digital world continues. And the digital world inside of that metaverse driven by AI algorithms that are making tactical operational strategic level decisions maneuvers its forces akin to a chess master or you know, um, uh, AI controlled chess pieces, such that now when we go up to fly the second mission, it's not like we're presented with a brand new scenario. We're capable now of entering um, a world in which we directly see both the impact of the first mission and the results of the changing landscape driven by artificial intelligence. Well, what have we just described there? In my view, we've described the metaverse for the military. And what does that mean? It means that for the first time ever, we're able to train um, exactly how we would fight and exactly how we could run campaigns over multiple days. And that is what we've coined as the military metaverse. And the stated goal on the Red Six website is that ultimately the military metaverse will scale to connect all warfighters across all domains into a visual joint synthetic battle space. Now, you're obviously somebody who dreams big and refuses to accept the answer no. So what, what is the biggest challenge in making something that grand happen? Um, well, I, I, the, the challenges are numerous, right? And, uh, you know, one of the challenges with young startups 
uh, stepping into the Department of Defense and working with the Department of Defense is literally working with the Department of Defense. Uh, and that, that's <laughs> for very real reasons that it, it, it puts a number of companies off. So there are a number of things that you can do to, uh, that, we, that we've done on both sides of the fence in fairness to the DOD. So let me focus on the Air Force. What the Air Force have done is created something called AFWorks. And AFWorks, it's actually one of the hubs of AFWorks is down there in Austin at the Capital Factory. And we're looking forward to doing a panel, I think, with AFWorks this weekend. So we'll be there and seeing the guys and girls, which, which is awesome. But what AFWorks' state of mission is to do is, is to basically identify young burgeoning technology companies and help them navigate the behemoth that is a Department of Defense procurement system, because it is a monstrosity and extremely difficult to, to figure out how to contract. We have been a program within AFWorks that helped us you know, make those initial inroads into the military. And so it, it goes some way to making that, that bridge of, of helping to navigate the behemoth because for young companies, it's very, very difficult. On our side of the fence, what we have to do culturally and what we've done so far is I think consistently under promise and then at every single deliverables, try to smash it out of the park and over deliver. And I think if I may say so, we, we've really focused on um, doing that with absolute integrity, such that every deliverable they've expected of us, we've delivered on time and we've gone above and beyond on the deliverable. And that builds credibility and it builds trust. Um, if you do that, the onus still falls on the individual companies to start to identify real customers inside the Air Force, outside of the AFWorks ecosystem, that look at this technology and say, hey, this has really got legs. This is something that can add a massive amount of value to, to a future end stage for us. And, and I think really importantly for companies that are developing technology, certainly in the DOD, it's, it's critically important not to develop it in a vacuum. And the reason you don't develop it in a vacuum, just as cool tech is, if it's not solving real world problems, inevitably you'll get to a stage where you go, that's cool tech, we can't afford it. It's not solving the major problems for us. We, we'll leave it on the table. And the tragic thing about that is we leave a, lot, a ton of technology and value on the table. So how to solve it? Well, you align your, your development roadmap carefully to the pain points that you identified in the, F, in the military. And I think from our perspective, we've been fortunate, certainly in the early days, uh, my own insight and relationships into the nature of the problems we were trying to solve. And they were such critical problems that we were able to align and leverage relationships I, I, I enjoyed. And over time, I built out the team to put a world-class team around me that are a combination of software, hardware engineers that are fantastic and deep operational military expertise that really understands the subject matter from top to bottom of the Air Force. And doing that, building trust, exceeding every deliverable, I think over time inevitably uh, leads you down a pathway where what seems impossible at, at the beginning also almost becomes achievable and you can see a pathway to it. It's the age old adage of how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. And, and that very much applies to, to dealing with DOD. From DOD's perspective, they still have a long, long way to go. And they, they have this cultural behemoth that is used to a legacy contracting approach with prime contractors. And the reality of it is that a lot of innovation now is not sitting in big traditional primes, it's certainly not sitting in the Department of Defense. A lot of it is coming from small, agile, aggressive startups like Red Six. Um, and so they need to go a long way to identifying that that's where the innovation happens and creating a system and a culture and a procurement uh, landscape that is conducive to agile procurement that helps companies get through the so-called valley of death. 
uh, there's no easy way of doing it. It's it's grinding and it's delivering at every milestone. Well, best of luck in continuing to plow forward with that grind. I wanted to end today's conversation, Daniel, with some uh, by picking your brain on Russia, Ukraine. In his State of the Union address last week, Joe Biden announced the U.S. would join its allies in denying Russian planes access to America's airspace. If it hasn't happened already, Russia will almost certainly do the same to America's planes. Considering how valuable Russia's airspace is and connecting flights from the U.S. to Asia, including a quarter of the world's air cargo flights, do you believe that's a worthwhile trade-off, and why or why not? Yes, I do, because what are the alternatives? Look, I, I don't think there is a military solution uh, for for NATO in theater. Look, there's a lot of discussion around a, a no-fly zone and, and, and military options for us. The, the simple reality- do, do, we, do, pe do people not realize that that essentially starts World War III? It's amazing to me that so many people seem to be on board with that option. Well, well, well that's and that, that's exactly it, right? The reality of putting a no-fly zone over there uh, uh, directly puts a NATO parts in harm's way, but puts them in a very difficult position because it's, it's not as simple as putting a no-fly zone over there. You know, to, to do that, we have to deal with advanced surface-to-air threats, which means preemptive strikes potentially into Russia itself and into Belarus. And what does that trigger? It immediately triggers uh, World War III and an escalation. Um, conversely, if we didn't do those strikes and we put pilots up into the airspace there, they are directly in harm's way and we're asking for trouble for them to be shot down. Are we willing to accept that? And the moment that th that happens to one NATO country, it evokes Article 5, which drags all of NATO into conflict. I also think it's a big strategic mistake to do that because, uh, you know, Putin is failing. My view is he's failing right now. Mm. And so there are two ways of dealing with it to bring this ultimately to a negotiated settlement. We have to choke the country completely through crippling sanctions and understand that that inevitably is going to inflict a certain amount of pain on us. And we're seeing that to a large extent with rising uh, gas prices over here. But twofold, those sanctions will inevitably kick in over time. If, if we can do that and if we can wage an information warfare to get direct information into the populace of Russia to help them understand what is actually happening over there, um, it, it puts him in a very precarious position. He doesn't have a narrative right now to justify this war, other than the false propaganda he's spreading. The moment we, we invoke any kind of military action, we give him the narrative he needs, which is NATO expansionism, and this is why it's a just conflict, and we can't give him that. So as painful as the other options are, and potentially as painful as it will be for us, we must uh, maintain um, a resolute focus on crippling sanctions and information warfare. That is, that is going to involve some pain for us along the way, but I think it's a... Uh, it is the best course of action because the alternative, as you pointed out immediately, is what? It's something that that's we, we just can't accept. Considering that the U.S. and plenty of others are supplying arms and logistics to the Ukrainian side of things, do you think this is going to turn back into uh, early 1980s Afghanistan for Russia and just something that uh, that hogties them in a lot of ways with anything else that they want to do around the world? Yes, I do. I think I think Putin's failed already. Right. He, you know, the idea was two days, put a puppet government in place, roll over them. And that has not happened. I mean, the, 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 the resolution and the grit, determination and, and just fighting spirit of the Ukrainian people led by Zelensky is, I mean, just so overwhelmingly admirable. Putin has failed and he's continuing to fail. We can't give him a uh, strategic win or a narrative to which he can anchor around continuing operations. We need to find an off-ramp through negotiations. 
the, the reality for it as well is, you know, we've seen a large degree of incompetency in the Russian military, frankly. I mean, some of the stuff we've seen in terms of lack of logistics, communication, lack of morale, and ultimately it's about people. They've failed and they've yet to enter the, the, the most difficult phase of, of warfare, which is urban combat. You know, this is a knockout, drag out fight that I don't believe they can win over time. And ultimately, I think they understand that. So I, I think I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic but I'm optimistic, I, I don't know, it's maybe, maybe that's not a true statement, but I think the only way to solve this is through negotiations. And that's inevitably going to involve a degree of concessions on, on all sides, because the alternative is a knockout drag out war for Putin that he can't win. And for us, it's an untenable situation in terms of military conflict. Um, so very few options here. Daniel Robinson is a Royal Air Force veteran and the founder and CEO of Red Six, a revolutionary technology firm at the forefront of synthetic air combat training. And he's taking part in a thought-provoking chat for South by Southwest tomorrow, that's March 12th, at the Capitol Factory from 2.45 to 3.45 p.m., titled Building a Metaverse. Even though this is part of the festival, you don't need a badge to attend. All you have to do is RSVP at CapitalFactory.com. Daniel, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, thank you for the efforts that you're making uh, in, in your career and, and trying to make this world a safer place. And my interest is peaked. So next time we talk, I'm going to have to hear the story behind you building that airplane. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one, Trey. I really appreciate it. And if you guys want to follow me at Red Six CEO, I'm on Instagram. You can follow the journey there. There it is. Thank you, Daniel. Perfect. Thanks, Trey. Bye. Stay tuned for more of my conversations with those involved in South by Southwest 2022. And to check out the chats that have already occurred, go to booksonpod.com and click that SXSW button bar at the top of the page. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Mm-hmm.